Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast, where we address topics relevant to today's consumers and farmers. I'm Preston Schrader. And I'm Jason Carr. Preston and I are Technology Development Reps, or TDRs, for Bear Crop Science. As TDRs, our primary mission is to help solve agronomic challenges that farmers face and to understand how to best utilize the bear suite of products, including traits, genetics, crop protection, as well as digital tools, to create solutions that are tailored to each grower's unique farm. We have a couple goals with this podcast, the first being to help farmers across the country to address challenges that they face throughout the growing season while introducing them to game-changing technology that has the potential to radically benefit their farming practices. We also want to provide the consumers of ag commodities who are not necessarily involved in agriculture with information about the practices farmers engage in and the reasons behind them, hopefully provide a greater level of understanding and comfort with how their food is produced. Today we would like to discuss a topic that in some circles is controversial, which is the topic of genetically modified organisms, or GMOs. This technology is obviously a huge part of modern agriculture, and there is a lot of information and misinformation floating around out there. It seems like everyone has an opinion, and often a strong one, at the benefits and perceived risks of these crops. So to, to help us understand this topic, uh, we, we have a really special guest here with us. Um, he was instrumental in the development and launch of the Round of Pretty Crops, and he's a vocal advocate for modern agriculture. From his humble beginnings on a small farm in Illinois, his pioneering work has earned him numerous awards, including the National Medal of Technology and Innovation from President Clinton in 1999 and the World Food Prize in 2013. And we are very excited to be able to talk today with Dr. Rob Fraley. Welcome, Rob. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and your education and your career? Good. And uh, again, thanks, uh, Jason and Preston, for uh, for putting this uh, in place. I think it's really uh, really important. Uh, communication is key. So, uh, yeah, as you know, I've uh, I've just uh, recently uh, retired from uh, from Bear, but uh, that's after. Uh, Almost uh, 38 years of uh, of uh, being part of uh, of I think one of the one of the really uh, exciting and impactful uh, technology stories that uh, that Monsanto created. So uh, as you mentioned, I grew up on a small farm in Illinois, not too far from where you guys were at, uh, between Danville and Watsika, a small town called Hubston. Had a chance to uh, to work uh, in the farm. I always tell people that. Uh, when I was eight or nine years old, uh, walking those bean fields, uh, pulling, uh, pulling the weeds by hand was a great motivation for uh, for developing Roundup Ready. Uh, I was fortunate to be one of the first members of the family to uh, to get to college. I got my uh, uh, degrees at the University of Illinois. Uh, was uh, studying uh, science, uh, which always fascinated me, and uh, graduated with a, a PhD in uh, biochemistry. And then had the uh, opportunity to uh, go to UCSF, that's the University of California, San Francisco. And what was key about that was that's where the um, the whole biotech uh, advancements started. Uh, the scientists who moved the first gene from one species to another were there. And uh, you know, I really got caught up in that science. And by the time um, I uh, left my postdoc, I was really focused on. Uh, 
how could we uh, develop methods for uh, for putting genes into plants? And I was looking for uh, for a place where uh, where we could do that research. And uh, Monsanto popped up on the radar screen, and uh, a lot of that uh, credit goes to uh, to an individual named Ernie Jaworski. Uh, Dr. Jaworski was putting together a group at Monsanto in the biotech area, and I was fortunate enough to uh, to join that team. Rob, as, as someone as someone who grew up uh, walking beans and hand weeding, also, I, I want to thank you for uh, your your help in uh, kind of making that profession almost extinct. Yeah, I think uh, I think a lot of I always when I give talks, I always say between the uh, the you know the new. Uh, the new round baling machines and Roundup Ready, uh, we gave America's uh, farm youth plenty of time to uh, to uh, study computers and do their own podcasts. So that's a good thing. <laughs> so uh, you know, we were able to uh, to uh, to uh, develop the methods for putting genes into plants uh, in uh, 1981, 1982. Uh, it's kind of a secret, but the first plant we ever worked on was petunias, and you know that. We took a little razzing for you know working in a, a big chemical company on petunias, as you as you might imagine. But uh, but it allowed us to make a lot of discoveries, and then we uh, we really focused for almost the next decade on developing the uh, the insect protected crops and the um, the Roundup Ready crops. Uh, early on, we discovered how uh, Roundup interacts with plants. It uh, it uh, uh, knocks out a, a unique pathway that's involved in producing amino acids that only plants uh, have. And we're able to uh, discover a gene that actually came from uh, Louisiana from uh, one of our uh, Roundup manufacturing plants. And uh, testing that gene and being able to introduce it into crops, we were able to, uh, to uh, eventually create uh, Highly uh, Roundup uh, tolerant uh, soybeans and cotton, and eventually corn. So the it was uh, it was an exciting time in terms of the uh, the science. And you know, looking back, one of my uh, my fondest memories is uh, is you know running by the uh, the interstates in uh, in Iowa and Illinois and looking at those incredible uh, uh, weed free Roundup ready uh, ready fields. It was uh, it was uh, really uh, really exciting, as you know that. Technology has uh, turned out to be uh, uh, incredibly successful. At, at one point, it, you know, Roundup Ready soybeans were uh, were on uh, you know over uh, well over 90% of the soybean acres. So that uh, that's something you know still today when people ask me, could I have ever expected uh, that kind of adoption? Uh, you know, but it uh, it's great to know that uh, the farmers have seen the uh, the uh, the benefit from that tool. All right. Thanks, Rob, for that background. I've always been, you know, really interested in the history of the uh, adoption and creation of these G this GM technology. Uh, what are some of the other traits that have been introduced in crops? Well, there's a uh, there's a, a number of uh, crops uh, that have benefited from biotech. You know, in the in North America, uh, you know, corn, soybeans, cotton. Canola, sugar beet have uh, have all seen the uh, the benefit of the uh, of the uh, the technology, and then in terms of the kinds of traits, the uh, you know the uh, uh, Roundup Ready trait that confers uh, tolerance to glyphosate has been a significant one. 
the uh, insect protection, uh, largely based on introducing the BT gene, which is the uh, the uh, protein from uh, from a bacterium called Bacillus thuringiensis, that's been used literally for a hundred years by uh, by uh, organic farmers and homeowners for insect control. Uh, scientists here at uh, Monsanto were able to introduce that gene into. Uh, cotton and uh, corn and provide uh, protection from uh, corn borers and uh, earworms and uh, and bollworms. So that was an exciting technology. And then uh, over uh, uh, the, the last several years, we've seen the introduction of, uh, of a drought tolerance trait in corn. Uh, scientists uh, at uh, Cornell University developed uh, a disease-resistant papaya, which is pretty uh, well, I think it was a pretty cool example because uh, it basically saved the uh, Hawaiian uh, papaya industry uh, and protected it from a, a particular uh, virus. And then uh, there's been a number of examples of uh, improved uh, nutritional quality in crops, uh, healthier oils in, uh, in soybean, and, uh, and uh, a variety of examples like that. And in many ways, the uh, you know the technology is uh, is continuing to uh, to advance in terms of additional crops and uh, you know a, a wave of uh, of new traits. So uh, you know even though uh, you know, this technology has been around for um, for now uh, well over uh, 25 years, uh, we're still seeing uh, you know new developments all the time. Yeah, Rob, you you reference that. Um the the years the track record basically of the safety of these crops um and we know that there's a, a pretty extensive uh regulatory process that we go through um to bring these to market can you talk a little bit about that process and the the, the amount of research that goes into confirming that these crops are not harmful to humans or um, non-target species Yes, and and just to make that point, I think you know I'm really um, you know I'm really proud of the fact that uh, that these technologies have been so widely adopted and have had such benefits to farmers. I mean the uh, you know the uh, Roundup Ready technology not only helped farmers improve their weed control, which was key, going back to you know pulling those weeds out of those soybean fields by hand, but because of the the confidence they had with uh, improved weed control, it was able to accelerate the adoption of uh, conservation tillage techniques, which, uh, you know, again, as a farm boy growing up on the farm, spending a lot of those uh, fall afternoons and evening plowing up uh, fields, having uh, the ability to control weeds instead with a Roundup spray is uh, has saved a, a lot of energy, uh, reduced erosion, and uh, and uh, you know moisture evaporation from fields. And of course, the BT technology for insect protection has dramatically reduced uh, some of the applications of chemical insecticides. It's given farmers a very natural and uh, selective uh, tool for uh, controlling insects. So there's been a uh, an enormous uh, benefit to farmers, but. What, what's also, I think, important to point out is, you know, in the 25 years that this technology has been in the marketplace, you know, there's not been a single uh, food or feed safety uh, issue ever associated with the technology. So we have a, a proven track record of 
the benefits with uh, with uh, uh, absolutely uh, uh, no risk from the technology. And that's not really, in, in many ways, unexpected uh, in the sense that what we're working with with biotech is, is DNA and genes and all living organisms, uh, plants, animals, and humans are, are composed of DNA and genes. And we now know that uh, that uh, nature has uh, been moving uh, genes around for uh, for a long time, and we can talk a little bit about that later. And uh, you know, DNA and RNA and proteins are are uh, inherent to life, and so uh, you know, it's a it's a very uh, uh, natural process. And of course, there's strong uh, government uh, oversight of these. I often say it's the most highly regulated uh, food products in the marketplace because. Uh, USDA, EPA, and FDA are, are all involved in the uh, in the oversight process, and you know that's been uh, been uh, I think a very strong feature uh, to promote the benefits and safety of the technology. It also means that it's a, a pretty lengthy and uh, uh, expensive uh, regulatory process. You know, from the time you uh, you breed that first seed to the time it gets approved and uh, planted on a farmer's field. You know, the better part of uh, 10 or 12 years goes by, and uh, the typical cost uh, for development of a new trait product is, uh, you know, close to $150 million. So it's, uh, you know, it's a big commitment to bring these new technologies to farmers. Um, you mentioned the glyphosate safety uh, or the safety of glyphosate. Do you want to expand on that, maybe contrast that with, with other technologies and, and uh, maybe just expand on the benefits of certainly, of well, as you know, Roundup uh, has been a, a mainstay product for the company. Um, it's been in the marketplace for uh, for nearly 40 years. Uh, it's constantly being uh, evaluated in uh, uh, by regulatory bodies uh, around the uh, the world, and uh, you know, both in the U.S., Canada, Europe, and Japan, it's uh, received the uh, the highest uh, safety uh, ratings and just. Uh, and just recently, the uh, EPA has uh, has uh, has stated that uh, that glyphosate is in the uh, the highest uh, safety category uh, for not being a, a a a carcinogen. Obviously, there's uh, some controversy today with the report that uh, that came out of uh, the uh, IARC organization. Um, you know, I think that was um, was a uh, uh, an unfortunate. Uh, uh, Decision by IARC, and you know that will eventually, uh, you know, play out through the uh, through the uh, through the courts and the legal review. I'm highly uh, confident in the uh, safety of the product. I know Bayer is absolutely uh, committed to uh, to uh, keeping this important tool in the uh, in the hands of, uh, of farmers. And in the end, I think uh, you know the clear, strong science that supports the uh, safety of Roundup will prevail. So the the product has uh, been used effectively, and in, in addition, as I said earlier, to the weed control benefits, it's had very very important uh, conservation and environmental benefits, both in terms of uh, of the uh, the reduction of of, uh, of tillage, uh, but also the ability to uh, to use a product that has a a very strong safety rating. It's really it's really frustrating sometimes to to think about things from the standpoint that Preston referenced. When we think about in the past that were just um, uh, unsound as well as dangerous to people, and and then we have one with a proven track record, right? Like Roundup, 
and um, you know, it, <laughs> it's 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 a little bit in limbo with all the litigation that's going on, and and that's a, a frustrating situation to be in, where a, where a really uh, safe and and uh, effective tool could be taken out of the toolbox of farmers. Like I said, I think we, uh, you know, the, the product has had a, just a long history of safe use in a, in a very strong and modern, uh, you know, regulatory uh, package. Uh, the, uh, the report out of the uh, IARC organization is, uh, is a clear outlier. And uh, again, I, I think that the, uh, in the long run, the, uh, the science will prevail. So Rob, you've been a trailblazer with uh, GMO technology. Just out of my own personal curiosity, what other technology do you see with a similar potential to change the agricultural landscape like the in invention of biotech crops was in well, the Well, you 1990s? know, that's always the, the hardest question I always get is, uh, you know, what's your favorite technology because there's a, there's a lot of uh, a lot of things going on. In fact, they, you know, I think an important point for for people to understand is, you know, I don't think that there's ever been a uh, a period in agriculture where there's been so much uh, innovation, uh, both in terms of the uh, the uh, um, established companies like uh, like Bayer, like Cortiva, uh, and others, but also uh, the uh, the startup community uh, and venture capital has uh, has literally over the last uh, several years invested uh, literally uh, billions of dollars into uh, you know uh, hundreds of. Uh, Food and uh, an agricultural startup. So there's a, a wave of innovation, and that's not to include all the innovation that's occurring uh, across uh, China, Europe, and uh, and the uh, the other uh, academic and uh, and uh, uh, commercial uh, operations. So it's a it's a special time for uh, for agriculture, and you know it's clearly needed because uh, you know we um, we continue to see the uh, demand for food increase. We continue to see pressures building to develop new and better technologies that allow us to produce more crops and more food with with less inputs and, and reduce the uh, you know the impact that farming can have on the environment. And so I think these are are, are you know for me what's exciting is we do have the uh, the advances being made. And I, I guess you know if you pin me down, I, I'd point to two areas that I think are are particularly exciting. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're right now in the middle of seeing, you know, the farming industry around the world become digitized. Uh, you know, the computers on today's tractors, the uh, communication uh, tools, the uh, analytics that now help farmers analyze literally every one of the 40 or 50 decisions they make on uh, to grow a crop. It, it's pretty spectacular. And, you know, whether we're looking uh, for information from sensors in the soil, from satellite imagery, from uh, from drones, uh, farmers are being armed with uh, with more and more information to make better decisions. And what's particularly uh, cool about the digital technology is, is it has a global fit, uh, not only, uh, you know, farmers in, in operations here in the U.S. or Brazil, but really importantly, uh, you know, smallholder farmers, which represent the, the bulk of the farmers' uh, you know, in Asia and Africa, uh, have the benefit of getting you know digital information on cell phones, and in many cases, for the first time, are getting uh, 
you know, uh, agronomic advice, weather information, market information, pricing that uh, that can uh, can change the game. So, you know, the the digitization of uh, of, uh, of farming for me is uh, is going to have profound implications. And then, you know, kind of thinking about the uh, the biology side of the equation, it, it's hard for me uh, to just not be extremely excited about the new gene editing tools that are being developed. And uh, gene editing is a, is a biotech tool, but what makes gene editing different than GMOs? In the case of, uh, of the GMO technology, just like we were talking earlier, the technology allows us to introduce a new gene into the plant, like the gene that we use to create Roundup Ready crops. In the case of gene editing, you have to think of this tool kind of like a, a search and replace function on your computer. Uh, gene editing uh, allows scientists to, uh, to change literally every uh, base pair of every gene, and you can use that to knock out or modify uh, every gene in the, in the plant. And that opens up the door for a lot of uh, crop improvements. And I, and I guess the, the key thing from a regulatory perspective is you're not adding a new gene. You're simply making uh, modifications in genes that are already in the crop. And the modifications are, are, are virtually identical to those that you would see in classical breeding. And so uh, regulators have taken a, a, a very different view, uh, particularly here in the, uh, in the U.S. And, uh, and in Canada. And I think that's going to facilitate the more widespread adoption of this technology and its application to a number of crops. Uh, the other benefit is the, uh, as a result of that, the, uh, the cost of bringing a technology to the marketplace will be much less. And again, it makes it possible for startup companies. And, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was, uh, talking earlier this week. I've actually judged some, uh, some science fair projects recently where high school kids were doing gene editing experiments. So, uh, it really, uh, I think enables a, a real broad access to, uh, to a tool that is going to have a, a, a remarkable impact, not only in agriculture, but in healthcare as well. It's, it's, I, I know it's definitely an exciting time for all of us to be a part of agriculture. Um, so Rob, you, you referenced um, nature moving genes around for, for hundreds of years, thousands of years. Um, can you expand on that just a little bit? Yes, and it's uh, it's really an important part of uh, of um, of the science story. So, you know, over the last decade, with the ability to sequence uh, genomes, all the genes in the in a human or a corn plant or a soybean plant, uh, we now know uh, a great deal of information of uh, of the the genes literally in all living organisms. And uh, what what the data now show is that, um, it, well, to, to sum it up, I guess, it turns out that uh, nature is a pretty good genetic engineer because uh, genes have been moving between species since the beginning of time. A couple of the examples I use when I talk about it, uh, you know, a few years ago, um, one of, the, uh, one of the, uh, the products that was being used for, uh, for cancer treatment called Taxol was being, uh, 
was being extracted from uh, from the yew tree. Uh, that's uh, Y-E-W. What scientists have shown is that that tree gained the ability to produce taxol because somewhere back in uh, in um, in uh, ancient history, uh, a fungal genome was transferred into the tree. So that that's pretty cool. Uh, the other example that that's kind of neat to talk about is. Uh, if, if you've eaten a sweet potato, uh, you've eaten uh, agrobacterium genes uh, introduced uh, in uh, again by nature. So the, the 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 cool part of that is, of course, agrobacterium is the tool that most scientists have used to make the, uh, the the GMO crops. And so nature did a little bit of that. And then probably the one that kind of catches people off guard is as they've sequenced the uh, the human genome around the world uh, of, of different uh, uh, populations, it's clear that the, uh, that the that we have somewhere around 150 genes in our genome that have over the years have come from insects and fungal organisms. And so the whole point is that uh, that uh, genes are moving around all the time. And I guess the, the last way to think about it, which is I think important for, for people to think about, is that literally every crop that we grow here in North America has come from somewhere else and has been genetically modified to be adapted to our climate and our production conditions. And so, you know, I, I always use the example that if, uh, you know, that if you landed, uh, you know, uh, hundreds of years ago on Plymouth Rock and you were trying to figure out what food was available in, uh, in North America, you'd have access to, uh, to uh, some, uh, some tree nuts and uh, maybe some uh, wild strawberries or, or uh, sunflowers. All of the crops we grow today came from somewhere else. Soybeans came from China. Corn came from uh, South America. Wheat came from Europe, uh, as a lot of the vegetables. And so they've all been, you know, processed uh, through uh, selection and advanced breeding techniques to uh, to be genetically modified to adopt. So in many ways, um, everything and everybody is going through uh, constant genetic modification and. Uh, and that's a big part of uh, of evolution and uh, and uh, and uh, breeding crops for the future. So, Rob, when we wrap these podcasts up, we like to uh, ask our guests, "What's one piece of information that you would give to younger, innovative farmers uh, to make their uh, farms more profitable, more sustainable?" Uh, really, you can go any direction you want with it. But one, what's one piece of advice you would give a young, innovative farmer? You know, you keep pushing me on that one thing. I'm not things. really good on uh, on one thing. I, I guess I I, I I give you two. How's that? We'll, we'll compromise. I'll do two. So uh, the uh, the first thing kind of relates to everything we've been talking about. There's so much technology, so much innovation coming. I think it's really important for uh, for a young farmer to uh, to be uh, very focused on the uh, the digital tools and the data access because that will allow them to. Uh, you know, to uh, improve every aspect of their operations and uh, and have the uh, the, the most uh, successful and uh, and profitable uh, you know uh, production on their uh, on their farms. The uh, the second thing which I feel very very strongly about, and it, it kind of uh, 
speaks to what we were talking about in terms of the uh, information and misinformation regarding uh, not only uh, the GMO crops, but I think a lot of agriculture in general. And that is uh, anybody who's involved in agriculture and farming operations, I think, has the responsibility to communicate and reach out to the, uh, to the broad public. You know, um, agriculture has changed so quickly. You know, when my grandpa was farming in, uh, in Illinois, half the people who lived in the state of Illinois lived on a farm. And as a result, people understood food production, where, you know, um, McNuggets came from and, uh, and, you know, the cycle that's involved in, uh, in turning agricultural products into food. Today, with, uh, you know, the success of farmers, uh, you know, less than probably 1% of the people in the state of Illinois are, are involved in farming. And, you know, that's true uh, across the country. And so that 1% has, uh, I think, a real responsibility to reach out to the, uh, to the other 99% and communicate the, uh, the, uh, the importance of agriculture and farming the safety and the measures that farmers take to not only protect our food supply but the uh, but the environment, and I think that is uh, increasingly uh, paramount for uh, for everyone. So I urge uh, folks to be uh, active in their uh, local communities, and I think it's particularly important that they're active in uh, social media and uh, communicating because you know. Today, most people get their information from the internet, from uh, from digital media, and uh, that's where uh, where people need to uh, to focus their communication efforts. And you know, I just I, I'd close by saying, uh, you know, I continue to be active on LinkedIn and uh, on uh, on Twitter. And if anyone wants to uh, follow me, my uh, Twitter handle is at Rob Fraley. That's R O B B F R A L E Y and uh, you know, I uh, I was busy tweeting this morning. We appreciate that, Rob. And um, that, it's it's you mentioned how important communication is, and that's kind of a soapbox that I sometimes get on too. And that's part of the goal of what we're doing with this podcast is is just to help that conversation be part of the conversation. And we really can't um, understand each other unless we communicate. So we have to be willing and be open to, to communicate with other people. No, that's true. I mean, uh, the, the science is, uh, is essential and uh, to, to make great products, but without uh, uh, equally supportive, great communication, sometimes these products are delayed or don't reach the market because of, uh, of misunderstanding and, uh, and lack of, uh, of uh, proper understanding of the science. I think in many ways, the uh, communication challenge isn't unique just to agriculture. I mean, we have communication challenges on other topics like, um, you know, climate change and global warming. Certainly, uh, in the recent years, the, uh, the focus of, of attention on communication in the medical community has been on vaccinations. And I, I like to I like to point that out as an example because um, it, it's interesting to note that uh, GMOs were launched in the uh, in the mid nineties and some positive and some negative form then. Similarly, uh, you know, the measles vaccine, the MMR vaccine uh, became very popular in the mid-90s, and that's when the, uh, you know, the uh, errant studies by uh, 
by uh, uh, Dr. Wakefield uh, confused people with, you know, what turned out to be uh, uh, misrepresented uh, data that was claiming a correlation between uh, the uh, the vaccine and autism. But uh, you know, those rumors, whether it's GMO rumors or vaccination rumors have, have spread, you know, wildly across the uh, the globe. And as a result of that, fortunately, people are making bad decisions. And in many cases, regulators are making bad decisions. And so, you know, it's really a, a poignant example uh, in both cases where we need stronger science communication to, uh, to ensure that these uh, incredibly important advances, whether it be for healthcare or for food security, uh, can actually benefit the world population. Uh, well, Rob, we're coming up on, we're over 30 minutes here. Uh, we appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to meet with us today and uh, have a, a great conversation. Good luck, and if I can help in the future, be uh, be delighted to do it. Uh, Kate is, uh, is a great communicator, and so, you know, tap on her every once in a while on uh, from optics.